And now here's another timely yet timeless word from the Word of God from one of our services at First Baptist Church of Crawfordville. Does the gospel, the good news that God saved you from sin and judgment by His great love and mercy, does that cause your heart to rejoice and your soul to be flooded with gratitude? Does the fact that you could have been a vessel of wrath prepared for destruction, but instead you're a vessel of mercy which God prepared beforehand for glory, does that cause you to marvel and ask, why me? If you grew up in a Christian home or that you or you've been a, a, a Christian, you've been saved for a long time, you face the danger of the gospel becoming commonplace. You become accustomed to God's grace so that you take it for granted. Now, one sign that you're drifting into such complacency is that you grumble about life's um, trials, forgetting that God has done the greatest thing imaginable in sending His Son to die in your place. Surely you can trust Him to provide for lesser needs. Another sign that the gospel has become ho-hum is that you've become focused on accumulating the world's stuff, thinking that having the latest and greatest gadgets will make you happy. You're laying up treasures on earth rather than in heaven. You think that you'll find contentment in the things of this world rather than in the joy of salvation. Now another sign that the gospel has become commonplace is that you begin to envy the wicked. Uh, you think that sin will satisfy your needs. You forget the horrible corrupting effects of sin. You actually begin to justify your sins and to blame others for your own disobedience. Now there are many more signs of forgetting the blessings of the gospel, but one final one that I'll mention is that you become indifferent to sharing the gospel with the lost, whether through your personal witness or by supporting the cause of world missions. You forget that those without Christ are lost and they're headed for judgment. And so we all constantly need to preach the gospel to ourselves and remind ourselves of the wonderful blessings of God's mercy to us in Christ. Now in our text, Paul continues his response to the problem that he raised earlier in the chapter. If God's promises to save His chosen people are good, then why are most of the Jews rejecting Christ? Well, he has shown that God's word of promise has not failed because He never promised to save all of Israel. Rather, God has always accomplished His purpose through a remnant that He has chosen according to His grace. There was a true Israel within Israel who were the children of promise. Now, Paul, too, uh, Paul knew that his teaching about God's choosing some but not all, that would raise questions. So in verses 14 through 23, he actually deals with these anticipated objections. Isn't God unfair to choose Jacob and reject Esau while they were still in the womb? And Paul replies, may it never be. Because we all deserve God's judgment, He is free to show mercy on whomever He wishes. God is free to raise up a man like Pharaoh to demonstrate his power and to proclaim his name more widely, but then to leave Pharaoh as an object of his wrath. Now, since we've all sinned, none of us has the right to blame God for judging us. 
as that divine potter that we looked at a couple of weeks ago, God has the right to use sinful clay for His glory, whether as a vessel of wrath or as a vessel of mercy. Both, both bring glory to God. Now, who are these vessels of mercy? In answering that question, Paul brings us back to the wonder of the gospel. He's reminding us of God's great mercy towards us in verse 24. He says, even us whom he has called, not from among the Jews only, but also from among the Gentiles. Now, that is Paul's theme for our passage today. It also ties back to the question of whether God's word has failed. No, says Paul, it has not. In fulfillment of his word, God, in mercy, is calling to Himself a people from both the Gentiles and the Jews. Now, verses 25 and 26, Paul supports this theme from the prophet Hosea as it applies to the Gentiles. God told Hosea that He would call the unbelieving ten northern tribes not my people and not beloved. But then, in mercy, He would restore them. And he would call them my people and my beloved. If those terms could be applied to sinful Israel, then they can also be applied to the Gentiles. Now, this would have been a surprise to the Gentiles who thought that they were excluded from God's promises by virtue of their not being Jewish. And then in verses 27 through 29, Paul supports the theme from the prophet Isaiah as applied to the Jews. He shows that even though there were many physical descendants of Israel, God only promised to save a remnant while bringing judgment on the rest. And as Isaiah also foretold, if God had not been gracious to leave Israel with a spiritual seed or offspring, they would have become like Sodom and Gomorrah, totally wiped out by His judgment. Now, this would have come as a surprise to many of the Jews. They thought that they would receive God's promises simply because of their physical birth as Jews. But Paul is establishing that God's promise to save His chosen people has not failed because He has prepared vessels of mercy not only from among the Jews, but also from among the Gentiles. So we can trust God to keep His word. Now, work, rather than working through the text according to the outline that uh, I've just given, I want to point out five truths about salvation that we find embedded in these verses. Number one, salvation is from God's great mercy and His sovereign effectual call, not from anything in us. Paul says in verse 23, the verse before our passage this morning, that God is making known the riches of His glory upon vessels of mercy which He prepared beforehand for glory. Then He adds in verse 24, describing them, telling them who, who they are, telling us who they are, even us whom He has called. Now that word called, that takes us all the way back to Romans 8.28. Right? That's one of the most precious verses in all the Scripture, and a lot of you know it. Paul says, to those who are called according to His purpose. Paul mentions... Called and I'm am I dropping out really, really bad? Let me turn off before we do that. Otherwise I'm gonna blow some ears, including mine. Hello? Alright, let's get that shot. Where was I? 
Uh, 8.30, uh, he's combining called in the theme of glory. He said, and these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. We encounter, encounter it again in Romans 9.11, so that God's purpose, according to his choice, would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls. Well, the entire book of Romans to this point, but especially chapters 8 and 9, they emphasize that God, not man, is the primary force behind salvation. Both pagan Gentiles and religious Jews, they were all under God's righteous wrath and condemnation. That's Romans 1 and 2. None were seeking God. That's part of Romans 3. He would not be unjust to leave us all under condemnation. He didn't owe us a thing. But in His great love and mercy, He sent His own Son to bear the penalty that we deserved. But God doesn't leave His sovereign purpose up to the choices of sinful people who have actually turned their backs on Him. Rather, He has mercy on whom he will, whoever He wills, and He hardens whomever He wills. He initiates His mercy towards some by His effectual call through the gospel. As we saw when we studied Romans 8.30, the word call is used two different ways in Scripture. The general call, the first one is the general call, and the general call of the gospel goes out to all. Jesus mentioned this when He said in Matthew 22, many are called, but only few are chosen. He issued a general call Himself in Matthew 11. He said, Come unto Me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. But the general call is not effectual because of the spiritual deadness of sinners' hearts. But in the New Testament epistles, the word call or calling or any variation of it is always used of God's effectual call. It always accomplishes God's purpose of giving life to the spiritually dead so that they respond willingly to the call. We see an illustration of this uh, when, when Jesus called Lazarus from the tomb. The call imparted life so that Lazarus actually came to life and responded to that call. Lazarus didn't lie in the tomb and think, well, I don't want to be raised from the dead right now. And you certainly can't, afford, you can't force me against my will. Rather, when Jesus imparted life to Lazarus, he willingly and he gladly came forth from that tomb. Well, in the same way, God's effectual call to salvation, that doesn't violate our will. Rather, his life-giving power makes us willing to respond. And the fact that we were not left in our sin as vessels of wrath, but rather were called as vessels of mercy, shows us that we owe everything to God's great mercy. It should humble us and fill us with gratitude every day. Well, number two, salvation brings us into a personal relationship with the living God. Formerly, we were not His people. Now, we are His people. Formerly, we were not beloved. Now, we are beloved. Now, we are called sons of the living God. Now, these are all terms of a warm, personal, and loving relationship with God. Now, behind this text from Hosea is a, a moving story of, of heartache, of grief. 
but it eventually turns into tears of joy. God told Hosea, the prophet, to marry and have children with a prostitute by the name of Gomer. Now, to be honest with you, I've only known one Gomer in my life, and that was Gomer Pyle, USMC. He actually started out on uh, the Andy Griffith Show for just a couple of years, and he was everybody wanted to see more of him, so they created a thing. You, you remember Gomer? How many of you remember Gomer? Yeah, he said things like, gosh, and golly, and shazam, right? I tell you, he and Sergeant Carter, they were quite the comedic duo. They really were. I watched a couple of them this week just to be reminded. But I digress. Hosea's marriage to Gomer, that was to be an object lesson to the unfaithful Israel that had committed flagrant idolatry against the Lord. Hosea, though, was not to divorce Gomer for her unfaithfulness, but to love her in order to draw her back to illustrate God's faithful love to an unfaithful nation. It was a very difficult sermon illustration. Hosea obeyed, and he had three children by Gomer. God told him to name the first son Jezreel. Now Jezreel can mean God will scatter. Through Isaiah's son, God was announcing that in judgment, he would scatter the northern kingdom of Israel. And this he did when Assyria invaded in 722 B.C. and conquered Israel and took them away. Hosea and Gomer's second child was a little daughter. And God said to name her Lo-Ruhamah, which means no compassion. He explains in verse 6, he says, For I will no longer have compassion on the house of Israel. The third child was a son. The Lord said to name him Lo-Ami, meaning not my people. He explains in verse 9, For you are not my people, and I am not your God. After this, true to her character, Gomer left Hosea and was unfaithful with a number of different lovers. She ended up shamefully disgraced on the slave market. God told Hosea, go buy her back, but not... Uh, uh, not as a slave, but as your beloved wife. It was an illustration of God's faithful love for His adulterous people. At that point, God changed the names of the children as a lesson to Israel of His great love. Now, in Hebrew, Jezreel can mean God will sow. What happens when you scatter seed? You're sowing. And so it can mean God will sow. God now turns this into a promise to sow the land again with people. He also drops the Hebrew negative, lo, off the names of the second and third child so that no compassion becomes what? Compassion. And not my people becomes my people. It's a moving, beautiful picture of the power of God's grace to restore unfaithful people to bring them into a relationship with Him. Now the point is, Christianity is not a religion of going through rituals and trying to keep a bunch of rules to gain standing with God. Rather, it's all about a gracious, compassionate, merciful God who calls sinners back to Himself. He paid the price to buy us out of the slave market of sin so that we could be His bride the object of His undeserved love and grace. Formerly, we were not beloved, but now we are beloved. Formerly, we were not His people, but now we are His chosen people. 
We are sons of a living God. Now, relationships take time, don't they? Are you taking time to maintain and to deepen your most important relationship, that is, with God? Well, number three, salvation extends to people from every type of background. Paul's theme is not from the Jews only, but also from among the Gentiles. This shows us that salvation is not a matter of natural birth or religious heritage or upbringing. Rather, it is available to all, no matter what their background. Now, in verses 25 through 29, Paul refers back to the Old Testament to show that he was making up what he had just said about God having mercy (laughs) and about his judgment. Um, And this mercy extends not only to the Jews, but to the Gentiles. And you got to understand that the Gentiles were despised by the Jews. So A, a pagan background does not exclude you from God's mercy. This is verses 25 and and 26. Now, this is great news for us that we're not born Jews. As I said, Hosea's words in their original context, they referred to the ten northern tribes of Israel. But Paul here applies it to the Gentiles, and so does Peter. The same verse in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 10. Paul saw that Israel, in apostasy, had been cast off as God's people. For all purposes, they became Gentiles, just like the pagan nations around them. But in His great mercy, God brought them back so that again, it could be said of them that they were His people. Now here, Paul applies this to the church, and that includes, of course, Gentiles. Perhaps you were raised in a non-Christian home where you received no understanding of how to live in a manner pleasing to God. Perhaps your background led you into all sorts of just horrible sins. The good news is, no matter how pagan your background, you can experience God's mercy and His forgiveness right now if you will repent of your sins and simply trust in Christ. Now, just as a pagan background doesn't automatically exclude you from God's mercy, be... A religious background does not automatically include you in God's mercy. This is verse 27 to 29. Many Jews in Paul's day thought, I'm good with God because I was born a Jew. But as Paul's already said more than once, being a Jew outwardly does not make you right with God. You must experience the new birth and have God change your heart. Being a child of the flesh counts for nothing. You must become a child of the promise. Now, verse 27, that should begin with but. Here, Paul is contrasting Israel and the Gentiles. He cites Isaiah 10, 22. Though the number of the sons of Israel be like the sand of the sea, it is the remnant that will be saved. The point is that the Jews should not rely on being part of Abraham's many, many descendants. Rather, they needed to be part of that small remnant. Skipping verse 28, let's look at verse 29. Here, Paul cites Isaiah 10.22. If the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have become like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Hosts, that's referring to the angelic hosts. It emphasizes God's sovereign authority over His creation. The point is, if the sovereign God had not intervened to preserve a remnant, the entire nation would have been destroyed, just like corrupt Sodom and Gomorrah. 
It's essentially the same point as verse 27. Being a Jew by birth is simply not enough. Even, the, even though the Jews were God's chosen nation, their hearts were just as corrupt as the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. But God granted His grace and salvation to a seed, a remnant. He was calling out vessels of mercy from among the Jews. Now the point for us is that it is not enough to be born and raised in the church. Your heart is just as corrupt as the hearts of those in the pagan Sodom and Gomorrah that we find all around us. You must become a part of God's seed, His remnant, through the new birth. Thus salvation is from God's great mercy and His sovereign effectual call, not from anything in us. Salvation brings us into a personal relationship with the loving God. Salvation extends to people from every type of background, whether pagan or religious. Number four, salvation delivers us from God's inescapable, thorough judgment. Paul cites uh, Isaiah 10.23 and verse 28. He says, For the Lord will carry out His sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. It's not easy to understand how Paul is using this verse here. It's probably emphasizing that God will bring judgment on those who claim to be His people by birth, but they're not actually following Him. When it comes, His judgment will be inescapable, it'll be thorough, and it will be sudden. None will escape except the remnant, the vessels of His mercy. Now, the point for us is that we should not emphasize God's love and grace to the neglect of His righteousness and judgment. I've met Christians who say, I don't worship a God of wrath and judgment, but a God of love and mercy. Well, then you don't worship the God of the Bible. And if you're excusing your sins and claiming that you're the object of His love because you belong to the church, you may be in for a rude irreversible shock come judgment day. You must respond to God's call of mercy by repenting of your sins, or you may be part of the professing people of God who are not actually part of the remnant. Number five, salvation brings us into the racially diverse spiritual family of God's people. God is calling to Himself a people not from the Jews only, but from the Gentiles. Now, in case you don't know this, in a Jew's eyes, who do Gentiles refer to? Everybody else. You're either Jew or you're not. And if you're not, you're Gentile. So just have that as a baseline. God is drawing a people to Himself from both the Jews and the Gentiles, which means from the entire world. As Paul put it in Ephesians 2.13, he says, But now in Christ Jesus you, referring to the Gentiles, who were formerly far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. That's to the Gentiles. He adds in verse 19, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, which you were outside of Christ, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. In heaven... There's going to be a great multitude from every people, tribe, tongue, and nation. And they're going to cry out salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. There's, there's not going to be any racism in heaven. It's going to be multiracial. It's going to be multicultural. 
And so there's absolutely no place for racism in the Lord's church today. I think that God is delighted when a church is multiracial. That didn't say that right. Multiracial. <laughs> we should be delighted with that as well. Unless there are language barriers, and I understand that, I think it is wrong for the church to segregate according to race. Let me, let me give you a good example of the first part of that. Uh, the, um, David Emmert, the pastor at Celebration, he was a, a IMB missionary to Ethiopia for eight years. So he speaks, the language is Amharic. It's even hard to say the language, Amharic. And it's a very difficult language, but he became very proficient at it. That was his job. He lived among the people, and so he got it. Well, one day, uh, the director of missions called David and said, Hey, we've got a group of people. Their first language is Ethiopian. Would you consider letting them use some of your space on Sunday afternoon to have church? They want to have church in their heart language. They, they, they tried in English and probably could speak a little bit. So when they came in to meet for the first time, what does David do? He busts out all over in Amharic and the people are just standing there wide eyed like, Oh my goodness. All right. They need a church. <laughs> We wouldn't go to their church in Amharic because we wouldn't understand a word. They needed their church for that. But, like I said, if language is not the barrier, yeah, we probably don't need to segregate according to race. We should love each other. We should learn from each other as the testimony of God's grace. So we are a racially blended family, talking about the family of God, because we are adopted by the God who is calling His people from among the Jews and the Gentiles, without distinction. To come back to my opening question, does the gospel, the good news that God saved you from sin and judgment by His great love and mercy, does it cause your heart to rejoice and your soul to be flooded with gratitude? If perhaps your appreciation for the gospel has grown a bit dull, Consider these words. This is a Puritan preacher, Thomas Goodwin. He wrote to his son. This is in the middle 1600s. Here's what he said as part of his letter. When I was threatening to become cold in my ministry, and when I felt Sabbath morning coming, and my heart not filled with amazement at the grace of God, or when I was making ready to dispense the Lord's Supper, do you know what I used to do? I used to take a turn up and down among the sins of my past life. And I always came down again with a broken and a contrite heart, ready to preach, as it was preached in the beginning, the forgiveness of sins. I do not think that I ever went up the pulpit stair that I did not stop for a moment at the foot of it and take a turn up and down among the sins of my past years. I do not think that I ever planned a sermon that I did not take a turn around my study table and look back at the sins of my youth and of all my life down to the present. And many a Sunday morning, when my soul had been cold and dry for the lack of prayer during the week, a turn up and down in my past life before I went into the pulpit always broke my heart and made me close with the gospel for my own soul before I began to preach. Don't ever get over the wonder of God's mercy to you in the gospel. One way to do that is to think of where He's brought you from. Now maybe you were raised in church and you don't, you don't have a, what you would call a horrible sin life, but you're still a sinner. 
outside of Christ, you'd go to hell. That's quite plain. But you know what I'm talking about. Some people, uh, they don't come to Christ till later in their life, and I mean they have had a hard road to hoe, right? The blessing to you, if that's not you, is that you didn't have to go through that. The blessing to them is now they can look back and say, oh my goodness, where God has brought me. Don't ever get over the wonder of God's mercy to you in the gospel. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for your word. Uh, I pray that it would touch our hearts this morning to, to realize how far we have come, even if we're brand new in this Christ walk. Uh, we are walking in a new way that uh, is new. Uh, Father, it's unfamiliar, uh, but what a blessing that you have called both Jews and Gentiles into this relationship. So Lord, help us to never take the gospel for granted. It cost, uh, the, the payment was incredible. The cost was the life, the blood of your son. So Father, we thank you for that. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, this morning we're going to have just a quick invitation to give you a chance to respond. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, they're not choking, they're just coughing. I see everybody looking. She okay? Yeah. Okay. Hey, precious. Uh, yeah, I see you wave at me too. Yeah. Gosh. Uh, anyway, uh, if, 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 you, if you know that you do not know God through His Son, Jesus Christ, there is a remedy for that. <laughs> it's to trust Jesus. It's, it's to not bring anything to God and say, hey, how about this? Well, does this count for anything? No, it doesn't. It absolutely does not. The only thing that counts is Christ. You have to trust His righteousness. So you ask God to forgive you of your sins. He's the ones that you've sinned against your entire life. Ask Him to forgive you of your sins and then trust what Jesus did on the cross on your behalf. If you're a believer, I hope that it'll just uh, you know, cause you to think, man, yeah, my trials aren't that bad. I'm going to heaven. God has paid a tremendous price. He has brought me into His family. You start thinking about the sins of your past like Thomas Goodwin and about the future, our glorified future, and you see this amazing contrast. One is black and one is gloriously white. That'll bring just a skip to your step, okay? A little comfort to your soul. Maybe you need to think about that a little more this week. Thank you for joining us for this podcast from First Baptist Church of Crawfordville. You can find more information and follow us on Facebook or visit our website, crawfordvillefbc.com.